Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. If your nonprofit is a hot mess and you feel like you can't win, you are not alone. These are the words of Mazarine Trays, as we are going to be interviewing her today. She is absolutely amazing. You guys are going to love her. And we are talking a lot about women and sexism in the nonprofit field. We're also going to be looking at white supremacy culture affecting freelance grant writers, as well as the notion that laziness exists. So definitely a lot going on today as far as looking at a per perspective from the feminine perspective, right, in nonprofit work, in freelance grant writing work. And Mazarine Trace is no stranger to these areas. She has over a thousand blogs written about associated topics on her website, and she is absolutely amazing. Some of these blogs range from fundraising, it said getting paid for emotional labor, um, all the way to donor sexual harassment. And are you attacked for your fashion gender bias at work? So many different things that we are going to be talking about today um, as this issue is now brought up more and more and more. And we've, we've definitely brought up this issue before on the Grant Writing and Funding podcast. Um, as you know, I'm very passionate about equality. I am a feminist. I really do believe in equality in um, women to get paid and to have a place at the table. Um, definitely not just a token seat, but actual filling up half the table. All right, so we are definitely going to get into this. I'm really excited and just get, give you a warm welcome today. Hello, hello, hello. You know it. You are part of the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast. We have amazing, amazing things happening in January. And just next week, we have a free five-day challenge. If you are interested in becoming a freelance grant writer or already are one getting paid to write grants, but those pesky discovery calls, right? Nonprofits are maybe asking you questions that you just don't know how to reply to, such as what is your grant writing success rate? Are you certified as a grant writer, etc. Um, sometimes we don't know how to reply to these quite right, but there is a way. And um, through January 17th to the 21st, it is a five-day challenge where every single day, I deliver a script so you can actually study how to respond. You'll have a script and you can act, you can also augment the script so it's more like from you, um, but definitely in ways that you can reply to this to still show your value as a grant writer. A lot of times um, many grant writers kind of feel kind of thrown off or belittled because of some of these questions. But really it's a part of educating nonprofits too and the information that is really important um, for for them to succeed with you, right? So definitely kind of flipping the switch on you are actually interviewing your nonprofit um, during, or nonprofit lead during the discovery call. So as I mentioned, every single day for five days, you get a part of a script and a short video email to your inbox. So do join that. You can go to grantwritingandfunding.com and forward slash 201, and I will have um, a link for you there. So I uh, definitely want to see you at that challenge next week. And you'll also get a live call with me on the following week that you can ask any questions and be able to um, get some feedback on your script. 
You are also going to want to visit grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 201 for today's episode because we have caboodles of links for you. Thank you, Maz. Um, so many links for you guys today. So you're definitely going to want to check out uh, Mazarine Refer. She gives a lot of information in here, and there is a lot that she backs up with all of um, different links so you can look into this matter further. All right, so who is Mazarine Trace? Well, she is a nonprofit leadership coach, speaker, and best-selling author of The Wild Woman's Guide to Fundraising, serving people in over 70 countries. Mazarine specializes in helping nonprofit leaders with fundraising goals through authentic relationships, both online and offline. As a result, clients have doubled monthly donors, taken their schools from $10,000 to $170,000 in recurring revenue, and created their own global nonprofits. Mazarine has co-founded a nonprofit and has over a decade of experience as a nonprofit fundraiser in small shops. Today, she leads the nonprofit workplace justice movement to create a better nonprofit work culture through her writing, training, podcast, and keynote speeches. And I know you guys all love podcasts because you're listening. Definitely check out her podcast as well, which is called Name It with an exclamation point. Yes, she has a lot of amazing podcasts that you can definitely check out all the way from cultivating your radical imagination uh, with all these guest speakers to recruiting with an equity lens. So all types of um, podcasts really focused on what she is passionate about and that she is bringing to the table today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode as much as I did. And once again, please jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 201 for all of the amazing show notes and links and just research and how to find um, and get in contact with Maz because she is amazing and you are definitely going to want to be on her on her newsletter list and as well as maybe check out some of her courses, her books, and her programs that she has to offer. All right, I'll go ahead and let Maz take it away. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Holly. Yes, absolutely. And we are going to be talking about amazing things. But first, I want to introduce Mazarin a little bit for those of you who don't know her because she is an author of three books. She is also a nonprofit leadership coach, speaker and bestselling author of The Wild Woman's Guide to Fundraising. And we're going to be talking a lot about women focus in here today. Loving it. And she works, um, she has her own uh, podcast. You do so many different things in the nonprofit space, Mazarin. And we also connected here, just a little backstory, because we were talking about you know, um, different points of feminism. And I was really, you know, Sean Kosofsky, he kind of put us together. So for those of you guys listening or watching, you guys know Sean, he's been on the show before. And he said, oh my gosh, Holly, you got to talk to Mazarin. <laughs> so I'm so glad that he connected us and just welcome to the show again. Yes. Oh, thank you. I am so happy he connected us to, yeah, like we actually, at my conference, the party at the end of the patriarchy, which is happening again in March, 2022. Okay. Um, I had a woman talk about feminist business models mm -hmm. and that was really exciting. And one of the key aspects of feminist business model is what you're doing right now, which is helping support another woman in business and, you know, using your platform to help her have a voice. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. And right back at you. I mean, it's really important. I know um, the further I've gotten in my business and worked through my own trauma and through with other women who have also seen, wow, you guys have similar trauma and, you know, being a part of the Guam, uh, Women's uh, Chamber of Commerce and other places where really working with a lot with women and saying, whoa, a lot of us have these systemic issues. Like, 
then identifying them as systemic issues. They're not just like our own trauma. It's like, no, it's, it's a part of, of the ecosystem that we're kind of born into and that we all of a sudden need to be aware of so we can overcome it. And just those epiphanies and realizations for myself then have really helped me change the design for my life and talk to other mm-hmm. consultants about changing their design, that it doesn't have to be the way that maybe we were raised to think it was of less than or feeling icky with our value or stuff like that. So I just, I'm so glad that, you know, we're on the same page with a lot of this and that you do so much in this space to really, you know, help women become aware and then move forward and have have solutions. So it's really inspiring to me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, where my heart is, is I love helping women ask for more. Mm -hmm. Like you really hit it. And I also love helping non-binary people ask for more. Um, Generally, I think men don't need the help as much, but people socialize as men. But yeah, just to be clear, like there's so many reasons why we don't. Mm -hmm. And there's so many reasons why we have this imposter complex. And as you said, the icky feeling. Like, oh, oh, I can't ask for that. And I can go into detail about why we have that or else let you ask questions, whatever you want. Oh, awesome. I love that. Okay. So yeah. So for you guys out there, I know a lot of you guys are working in nonprofits, you, or you're looking at, you know, transitioning into becoming a freelance grant writer, a nonprofit consultant, or maybe you've been there for a while and you just kind of hit a plateau. Right. And really feeling like, okay, as a woman, I know, I, I feel like I should be ahead of where I'm at, maybe financially, maybe, you know, owning my own, whatever, you know, like really I should be further, but why do I feel held back? So I really want to touch on kind of just the general sense first, and then we can go a little deeper. Yeah. Well, why do you feel held back in your work? That's what you're saying? Yeah. 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 Um, whether you're a freelance grant writer or you're looking to take your business to the next level. Um, I actually helped a grant writer this last year raise her rates 60% and her um, clients didn't even blink. Um, And that felt really good to me. Mm -hmm. She'd been in business for a long time. And, um, and I, you know, she was an older person, older than I was. And I was like, huh, I wonder, you know, what's up with that? Why do we have such a hard time? And I was actually studying with a wonderful person last year named Kaja Urbanic. And she taught me a lot about how to ask for more. And so these are the um, tools that I use to help women do that. A lot of the history and the backstory with that, I actually have this written down here. So I'm just going to go look at it. Um, The reason why we do this to ourselves Mm -hmm. and why we accept less than we should Mm -hmm. is um, because, you know, society was built on women's uncompensated labor. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it again. Society was built on women's uncompensated labor. So that value mindset and imposter syndrome is very common in women because for years, I don't know about you, but in my family, we were told you have to work for free. You have to watch the kids. You have to care for the elders. You have to cook and you have to clean. And you do all of that for the love. Well, domestic labor is still labor. It's still work, right? But we were taught to devalue ourselves from a very young age. I'm the oldest of 25 grandchildren. Like I never got compensated for my labor. And Mm -hmm. so my first nonprofit job I had, I was getting making $10 an hour and that really wasn't feeding me. I was living on my credit card and I just couldn't believe I asked for so little. Mm -hmm. Now I routinely help people coming from the nonprofit sector charge, you know, $300 plus an hour. Mm -hmm. And it's so um, renewing and refreshing to me 
to watch women grow that way because we're leaving behind, we're breaking the spell yes. of patriarchy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I love I love that the image of breaking the spell because it is. I mean, um, and for you guys that are listening to say, well, what there's a difference between women and men getting paid? Yes. Okay, let's just start. Generally, it's like 81, per, uh, 81 cents per dollar. So for every woman that works, it only gets 81 cents per every dollar a man does. And that's just a general. That's not even like, let's get into the freelance grant writing. So let's get into the nonprofit business. And when it comes to women of color, it's only 63 cents per that dollar. So there's even greater gaps, right? And it, it, there is, it's a very real, it's not just something dreamed up. I mean, we can just look back and say, we've only been voting for a hundred years. Like, like that is not long in the scheme of things in things for women, right? Um, That's right. And up until the 70s, women couldn't open a bank account by themselves. Like, so woman making great money with her emotional labor and the quality of her ideas is deeply subversive. I'm just going to quote Simone Grace Soul right now. She says, please remember all this the next time somebody finds issue with the very idea of you being well paid or thinks you're charging too much or says you should do what you do for free or tries to get you to charge by the hour or tries to police how you use your money or in any way tries to link your money with a moral defect, misogyny runs deep and wide. It's the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's often internalized and weaponized by women to be used against themselves or against each other. So when you see it, you can recognize it, have compassion for a collective wound and lovingly, peacefully and uncompromisingly set a new standard. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. That's why I had to quote her. She's yeah. great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I wrote it down. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's funny that you say that because in, and to really think about this, it's, it's embedded, right? So even looking at, for instance, I, and the more you, you realize that it's embedded, you become aware and that's such a powerful thing. So even like just my daughter at school, she goes to um, a private school, right? And they have to wear uniforms. So her uniform is obviously, it's a skirt, right? So it's like the, the shorts with the skirt thing over it. And I got to thinking, I said, honey, isn't it cold in your classrooms? Because the aircon, right? It's blasting. She's like, yeah. And I said, and the boys wear pants. Mm-hmm. And why can't you? Why is there even different uniforms for men and, you know, for boys and girls? Why is there even a differentiation? And it's just like, so you guys, you know, it, it's such, so I said, do, you know, does any of the other girls wear the pants? Oh, there's one girl. So I'm like, well, you got one girl who's brave because they can, they can wear whatever you want, but it's like this social thing then that the other girls, they want to wear the skirts because it's like the social dress style. And it's just like, but is it comfortable? You know, so I think even embedded in something that might seem so minute like that, it's everywhere when we really open our eyes so, I mean, how do you encourage women if, when they're working in the nonprofit or they're a freelancer just to become more aware and that they have choice in those types of things as well? Well, that key word you said there is choice. Every day you can wake up and make new choices. So the first time a woman said to her boss, I want a year off from my job. I want you to pay me while I have a baby. And then I want you to hold my job until I come back. She had to ask for that. That was something that helped millions of women after her have maternity leave. Um, but she had to be the one to make the ask. Mm -hmm. And so if your daughter is cold in school, just going back to your example, mm -hmm. could she be brave enough? And could you as her, your mom support her, right? 
could you be brave enough to ask with her, can we just let boys and girls wear whatever they want, pants or a sport? Mm -hmm. And you could be helping so many girls no longer have cold, shivering legs. But more than that, you could be breaking that gender um, bias that says, you know, it's, it's important to be uncomfortable in, in the name of your gender. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many things I could say about that. Like I've been attacked for my fashion at work. Um, people who are like lawyers working at, you know, Harvard and Stanford have gone on strike and, and quit on mass because of the, what they call gender asbestos, mm -hmm. um, that they experienced at those, um, colleges. And I, I have links that we can put in show notes and stuff like that about what that is, why that happens. Um, policing how you dress is just one part of the sexism puzzle, but it's also part of the racism and white supremacy puzzle because mm -hmm. who decided open toe shoes were not professional? Who right. decided that wearing a blazer and looking more masculine was more professional? Mm -hmm. Who decided that stewardesses had to wear makeup as part of their, you know, um, outfit? Yeah. You know, there's all this tax that you pay as a woman and there's uncomfortableness and how you get judged that, really adds up over time. Um, so if we just unquestioningly accept that, we do it as a detriment to ourselves. Right. No, and I love that. Yeah, it's like it's like making the choice and looking at those things and realizing like, yeah, why do they have to wear makeup? Why do they, why are they wearing blazers? And, you know, there's almost been this movement. I think a lot of it, I'm a Gen X, right? It's a lot, I've seen it a lot in my baby boomers as well as my friend calls it um, men with lipstick. So women taking on roles and kind of wearing those blazers, wearing, you know, being more aggressive, what they see men doing, who can move up, who can ask for raises. They kind of bring that same energy to a room because that's the only example that they've really seen in a lot of cases. If they haven't seen women doing that. And, you know, that necessarily could, or that could really backfire too to to a woman's energy right to move forward and at that kind of masculinity way so have you seen that as well like has your experience been like that men with lipstick kind of um you know way forward that some women move forward in that way you know I was talking with my aunt about this when I was in um Florida a few uh like uh, earlier last week yeah. and um one of the things that she said was, um, I don't blame women for wanting to act more like men because there's such a cost to being a woman and also being, you know, feminine in this culture. Um, one of the things that um, maybe you can relate to is moving to another culture and seeing femininity and masculinity and how they're displayed in that culture and being an ethnic minority. And so when I moved to Korea, um, I really, uh, in South Korea and Seoul saw femininity and masculinity displayed in a really different way. And then I moved to Indonesia and I saw that displayed differently again. And so I had grown up on the East coast and I grew up with that same mentality of acting feminine, wearing makeup, or even just like not having that bro kind of attitude that we're rewarded for. I, I grew up with that as being like very much a part of how you should be as an East coast New England woman. And then I went there and I came back and I said, none of this is set in stone. You know, there's a great strength in being feminine as a great strength in, in, in challenging what we think about gender and sexism. And, you know, there's, there's stages to our consciousness about this. Yeah. And I would like to um, reference the work of Dr. Debbie Jenkins, who I had on my podcast last year. And she talked about this in terms of racial awareness mm -hmm. and racialized trauma. So we might also like to think about this as like gender trauma for ourselves, um, but men have this too, right? So 
she said she calls it racialized categories and development. So um, you go from conformity, where you believe that men do everything right, right? And she said black people are also in a space of conformity where they believe that white people do everything right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go from dissonance is where you're not sure if you've experienced a racialized experience. It's like Carlton on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He's arrested for driving a Mercedes. He kept saying, well, they must be pulled me over for a reason. It must have been because I was driving too slow. And his dad said, I used to think that too, son. He's trying to tell him, no, it's because you're black. So that's the dissonance. And then there's the immersion phase um, where the person realizes now there's some social injustice, but their response is a little more frustrated. So realizing what is going on, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the immersion phase um, where you're uh, basically in a space of, you know what, not only am I upset about this, but I only want to be around my people. I don't want to be around anybody else but my people. So, you know, they just don't, you don't want to be around white people, you know, and, um, you know, there's this power and privilege and inequity. This is a system that's strategic. So that's uh, internalization. And, you know, and then there's integrative awareness, which is, okay, um, you start thinking about your class status, where you're building up relationships with people in other groups, you're secure in your identity, you're clear about who you are, you're clear about not sacrificing yourself, you're not allowing people to tokenize you, otherize you, victimize you, to humanize you, none of that is being allowed because you're clear on who you are, so mm-hmm. I dehumanize you, and at the same time, you're able to make strides for systemic change, mm-hmm. so those are like, you know, the six levels of where we might be, where some people who are listening or watching might be looking at, oh, mm-hmm racialized awareness or, you know, gender awareness. Yeah. I love, I love that system too, because like you said, you could be at different points in that system and not realizing there's another path beyond that. Right. So Mm -hmm. kind of moving from path to path. And I, you know, I think a lot of us have, you know, been on that path or parts of it. And it's like, wow, you know, really understanding and being like, Oh, that's how, why I felt so connected to like the woman at that time, or you know what I mean? Because that's the stage I was at. I wanted to be connected to my tribe. So it's like, you know, moving through that, but that's a really, really cool way to look at it. Um, And then just kind of relating all of this back then. So, you know, we kind of looked at big picture and look at some systemic um, issues and then how we, you know, are navigating through those. And now to bring it back to the nonprofit world, as far as, because we do see a lot of um, gender discrimination in nonprofits. We see a lot of male executive directors, um, you know, male presidents of the board. We see a lot of higher paid men, et cetera. You know, there's a lot going on there. So for a woman who may be working at a nonprofit at this point in time and being like, you know what? Um, I've been number two for a long time, like, you know, the runner up to the executive director, if you will, but doing a lot of his job, um, but, you know, not getting paid for it, you know, those types of situations, because I actually see that quite a lot. Um, So how could you encourage her, like, what would be a step to ask for more, like what you started off, you know, kind of saying, like, how can she get out of feeling like, oh my gosh, now I realize this is, a bigger issue than me, but I do have a choice, but what do I do? Yeah. So when I was talking about white supremacy just now mm-hmm. and racialized categories, that's still very much within the context of nonprofits, just to be clear. Yeah. Um, we have a system that is broken, whether you're working in government, corporations or nonprofits, and it's all based on white supremacy and it's based on colonialism. 
Um, and it's based on um, patriarchy and it's based on capitalism, right? So um, everything I'm saying has immediate relevance for you if you're working in a nonprofit or working with nonprofits as a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, so that might be why people are devaluing your work, whether you're inside or outside, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it might be also why you're just not getting where you want to be. And so um, nonprofits are often toxic pit holes of racist, you know, workplace culture. And so we really need to ask ourselves, um, hey, if I'm not getting a fair shake here, where can I get a fair shake? And um, some people say, oh, consulting is too precarious. And to that I say, working for someone is precarious. So I just worked with a woman this last week who was trying to leave her nonprofit job and then she got pushed out and then she immediately got another interview and got $5,000 more. We worked together to get her a raise. And so we like worked really hard to show her she had this value because she is underpaid for so long at a, a national organization I will not name, but they are just notorious for paying their workers so little and saying, well, we just don't negotiate salaries here or it's just not in the budget. Right. So I have phrases you can use to overcome that. But mm -hmm. one of the things that I'll, unfortunately a lot of people have to remember when you're working full-time at a nonprofit is if you've been accepting a low wage for a long time, they might only ever see you as that person and you're going to have to make a lateral move. Okay. But by that, I mean, apply for another job, mm -hmm. get that job and negotiate a higher salary there because the people who are around you right now clearly do not value you. Mm -hmm. okay. And if you think no one's going to pay me $300 an hour, Mazarin, I'm like, yes, they will. They will. There's over a million nonprofits in this whole country Mm -hmm. There absolutely are people that are willing to pay you more. Mm -hmm. And even if you've been charging less as a consultant or as an employee, it's all about asking. And I have key phrases you can use either at any review time or uh, in your job, you know, application process or as a consultant to get more. Um, and that's kind of what I do in my mastermind. And we have about five spaces left in that. People want to learn about that. We can put that link in the show notes too. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's very, very insidious. Mm -hmm. Women do it to other women, but I did a survey with Bloomerang for two years in a row, one in 2019 and one in 2017, where we looked at an, a thousand different nonprofit workers and each one of them, no matter how many years of experience they had, the men were making more. So yeah. don't tell yourself, I don't have enough experience to make more. Don't tell yourself, I don't have the right degree to make more, it doesn't really matter. What matters is how do you value yourself and how can you take action on that new value that you're putting on yourself, even if you fake it till you make it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, and I love that you mentioned that because part of it's too, if we look at this as a huge gender discrimination, like systemically, maybe you aren't getting as much experience even compared to a man because he has more opportunities and it's the boys club, right? For a lot of these things. So it is to say, no, you can step into your own and you can still like, I like, I fake it till you make it, but also, you know, the value that you put into things. Women are doing so much more in a lot of cases compared to men in a lot of these jobs. Um, but are you documenting? Are you really, you know, keeping track of that too, to understand the experience that you actually are getting because a lot of times that goes to that imposter syndrome, right? Like not even realizing all of the work that you have um, and all of the experience you really do have. Um, but writing that down can help you identify that and to remember it and to be like, oh yeah, I, I did do this, right? So I love that. Mm -hmm. Oh, you did. Not only did you do it, you did it so well that, you know, other people should be singing your places. And when they're not, you start to doubt yourself. You start to say, 
why didn't I get a raise? I did, I raised all this money for them. Like I was working um, as a development director at the Urban League in um, 2009. I went from making them $7,000 in grants to making them 120,000 in grants in one year on top of running a humongous dinner with hundreds of people attending, getting all these sponsorships, going from 150K to 250K without even a loan and running a career fair. I mean, I was doing so much for them and my boss was not acknowledging it. And he was routinely making people, including me, cry. And so um, for people who are in a hot mess of a situation, I am living proof and so are my clients. You can get out of those situations and you can actually thrive way harder without them, even if you're afraid to leave. So um, one of the reasons that you might be feeling like stuck there and why you might be devaluing yourself are like you know, the 12 different aspects of white supremacy culture taken from dismantlingracism.org, uh, Jones and Okun's work. I highly suggest you go to dismantlingracism.org and download the PDF, but here's what they are. Perfectionism. So you think if you didn't do something perfectly, oh, it's not, just throw it out, right? Sense of urgency. Well, with grants, we already know that happens a lot, but like your boss saying, you know, you have to do this by the end of the year or you're a terrible person. That's a sense of urgency, right? Defensiveness. Oh no, we can't tell you how much other people are making, right? Oh, men are making more. We don't want to tell you that. Like I'm super defensive about that, right? Mm -hmm. Quantity over quality. How many grants did you get out this week? What if you cut out a really big government grant? Yeah. That's worth way more than three little ones for $5,000 each, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Worship of the written word. If it's not written down, it never happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, only one right way. That's not true. That is never true. There's always tons of ways to do things right. But in grant writing too, they're all like make a replicable program because there's only one right way to do it. Like, And you know that the reason your program is so successful is because you have the right people in there and that's not replicable. You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, paternalism, which is... I know better than you because I'm a white cis woman or I am a white cis man, mm-hmm. right? And um, that's part of colonialism. Like we're gonna help the brown people or the black people do something in their lives that's better than they could do alone because we are white and therefore better, right? So that's people giving you unasked for advice and blah, 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 right? Yeah. Um, either or thinking, either you're with us or against us. Don't <laughs> criticize the nonprofit. You're either with us or against us, like, no. No, we can still criticize it and love the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, power hoarding, like you were mentioning, these guys at the top of these organizations not wanting to give up power, whether mm-hmm. it's on the board or EED. Fear of open conflict. What is it that's keeping you from asking for more? Is it fear of open conflict? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe I see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Right? Me too. And I've been there myself and it's very white culture thing. And so you can be like, eh, no, I'm going to actually ask, why don't I have more? And if they can't give me a good answer, I'm going to look for a new job tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. individualism, like, oh, well, you know, you can't tell uh, everybody that we're doing this. Like, you know, you have to do it all yourself. You don't have to, have, you can't have any help. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, progress is bigger and more. You need to like make more and more grants every year. That's the hedonic treadmill. It's like, did you give me more money for my budget? No. Then why should I be making more? Mm-hmm. You know, objectivity. Objectivity is a myth. That's brought up only when people don't want to hear what you have to say. They're like, oh, I'm objective. I'm logical. No, you're not. You're just as emotional as everyone else. You're always making decisions from your gut, whether or not you acknowledge it. And there's scores of studies that support that. And finally, right to comfort. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when you're branded the problem in your organization or in your family or whatever, it's because people who are white or who are, you know, brainwashed by white culture, white supremacy culture, um, think that, uh, 
they have a right to comfort. And if you say something that disturbs them, you're automatically wrong or bad, even if you're talking about a problem that really should be resolved because mm-hmm. they're losing people, they're losing money, they're losing funders, and they don't want to hear it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So those are the 12 uh, aspects. And and just to not depress you, um, you know, we have these inside of ourselves as well as outside our organizations. But if you want antidotes to these, if you go to dismantlingracism.org, Okun lists antidotes to all of these so that you can start shifting this in your workplace processes and inside yourself. Um, and I, I think it's really important to like think about this is not a hopeless cause, but mm-hmm. we have to break that spell to be able to even see that it's happening. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I I love that you pointed out each one of those because those are all, you know, things I see, uh, you know, a lot of the women they struggle with a lot is, you know, even, you know, if they're a freelancer and I've got to get my website absolutely perfect before I launch it, I'm like, it's never going to be perfect. (laughs) Never, ever, ever. It's always like, uh, done is better than perfect, right? So uh, same for grants, done is better than perfect. It's not going to be perfect. What if you're just spelling mistake? Oh no. Yeah. It's like, you know what? There's going to be like mess ups and that's okay, but it's more about getting things out, getting things, you know, just manifested and done. Right. So it's, it definitely has been a lot of that holding back that perfection that, you know, I, I, you know, I love all the different things that you're looking at too, is to say, am I struggling with this? Am I seeing myself projecting on some of these things as well. Am I trying to give advice where I shouldn't be necessarily giving advice, right? Like a lot of, I see nonprofits doing, I also worked in Indonesia and I saw a lot of that after the Asian tsunami where, you know, big organizations just swept in and said, we white people know what you need. And they were like, no, no, that's not exactly what we need, but we're going to kind of play along with it just so we get money. Like I saw a lot of that, which I thought was actually, you know, it's pretty smart. <laughs> They're like, how they with it, right? So, sure. um, but yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see that, that, oh, there's a need and I know how to fix it. And there, there's, it, not, it doesn't necessarily come from a place of nefarious or there's nothing like that. Sometimes it's well-intentioned, but it's just gone about in the wrong way, right? So, well, I mean, intentions are not impact and we have to keep remembering that. So if somebody says your impact was colonial, your mm-hmm. impact was white supremacist, know that it's not personal, you're a product of the system. Yes. And we're here to fight and hold systems accountable. Mm-hmm. We're not here to fight individuals per se. Yes. Because yes. The, the, the individual is a product of the system. Yeah. And I had to learn this pretty hard last this last year when I was giving advice to people in my, my racial equity class. I was like, oh, I really am tied into offering so many resources and trying to prove my value because I was taught that that is my role. That's how I get value as a person if I overgive, which is a codependent response. Um, so understanding that your family of origin stuff can affect how you move through the world and mm-hmm. how you overgive or how you assume power and control. And it's all about how power obscures itself, right? Setting yourself up as a expert means that you are in some ways seeking power. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sometimes don't think that people of color have uh, or people from the global majority have the right tools to succeed because of who they are. Uh, so if you want to decolonize your mind and decolonize your nonprofit, you might ask yourself, how can we involve community members more in mm-hmm. these decisions that we're making? Yes. And before offering advice, ask for permission. Can mm-hmm. I give you some advice? Or do you want any advice right now? Or do you want me to just listen? Mm-hmm. 
I love that. You know? Yeah. And I, that's, I'm so big on like doing strengths assessment, you know, not just needs assessments, but going out there and doing focus groups and inviting people in and, you know, and just sitting back and really listening to the conversations. And then that way you're really seeing the need. Um, so yeah, it's an interest. I like that decolonize the nonprofit decolonize the mind. Um, and yeah, and just to kind of segue then into, so we talked about, you know, being maybe in a place of work, potentially moving laterally, if you're really not feeling like you're getting your, the value because you might not get the value that you really deserve or earn, right? Like have, if you're at that same place that's been paying you so low for so long. And I thought that was such a good, um, you know, something really interesting that you said on that, because that's the other thing too, is you can't just keep fighting it if you've been devalued for that long. There is that, that perception then, right? And it's really hard to break that, but I like just change the place then. <laughs> demand some more from there and that's going to be a new start and that's even with freelancers so as we kind of segue into freelancers then a lot of people out there grant writers nonprofit consultants they're like okay I saw that was going on in my nonprofit so I decided to open up my own place because I know I can make more money right I know I can offer I can have more value there so that's a lot of people I see that that's how they kind of transition in sometimes is because they were fired or they quit. <laughs> they were like, I'm done and I'm going to start up. Right. And then sometimes they're like, I apply for jobs and just didn't get them. So this was the only choice. Right. And that's kind of, and then they look at that and they say, all right, so now I need to structure my week and I need to work 40 hours a week. And I need to like be on during these times and da, 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 da. So it's kind of like bringing that um, kind of, you know, system into your own place. And that kind of goes with that decolonizing the mind, because then we're just replicating what we were trying to get away from. So can you kind of that's speak right. a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, there's a Instagram account called Decolonized Time. Mm -hmm. And it asks us, like, you know, why are we so completely hostage to these little numbers on our screens that say this is the time, this is how much time you have to have, and, you know, spend most of your time working because otherwise, if you don't have enough money, you're a failure, you know. So you really have to do the inner work of decolonizing and the outer work of decolonizing, or you could say breaking the spell of white supremacy at the same time, mm -hmm. whether you're doing it inside or outside. If you only do one, the other one isn't naturally going to follow. The key here is willingness. How willing are you to break down your beliefs in these structures? And, you know, as Anjali Nakipadye said in her um, podcast, Feral Visions, how can you exercise that muscle of letting go of what no longer serves you? Just be like, peace out you know what, peace out with the nonprofits that don't value me, all of that. Um, but if you're trying to recreate these systems and say, if I'm not working 40 hours a week, you know, I don't have any value, that doesn't make any sense. A lot of us can turn to this because we're single moms or because we have just other things we want to do other than work our whole lives. And so for us, the payoff is worth it. So how do you feel? I mean, I think what you're asking is, how do you feel productive enough to actually make your business go without replicating the old system you came from. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that. That. According to the book, 
laziness does not exist mm -hmm. and work won't love you back. One is by Dr. Devin Price and the other one is by Sarah Jaffe. And I can put those in an email to you as well. Um, you can listen to some podcast interviews by them on the Upstream podcast. It's very interesting. Um, but one of the things that they talk about in their books, which are on my top five books of the year, is who decided we had to do a 40 hour work week at all? Yeah. Like what if, you know, studies have shown that human beings, even if they're working in a factory are at most productive for three to four hours a day tops. Mm -hmm. So other countries right now are having great success with doing a four day work week, a three day work week. You know, in France, if you have a government job, the police get on the phone at 430. If you're on the phone and they say, get off the phone. So like there's plenty of people saying we refuse to let you work as hard as you think you need to, um, because literally it's killing you, it's killing the planet. And there's lots of um, articles from The Guardian about this as well, about if we wanna save the planet, we need to stop commuting and we need to stop like working this hard. Um, so, you know, futurists from the 50s said, well, by you know the 2020s, we're gonna have, people will hardly have to work at all. But because of um, capitalism, specifically because of like this predatory system we currently have, it's much better for the system if we are stressed out, burned out, and making all this money for corporate overlords, right? So um, one of the best ways to unplug yourself from the system is ask yourself like, you know, um, work. just tell yourself work won't love me back. Yeah. And I need to prioritize my relationships right now and my people in my life that I love, that my things that make me feel alive and just keep doing those because that's how you unplug from this whole machine. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's stuff that you cannot buy with money and there's systems of community care and solidarity economy that will never be measured by any of their clocks and any of their, um, you know, grant proposals. It's, it's really about taking care of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. You know, I, it reminds me of the interview I did with Vule from um, AF nonprofit and he was talking yeah. about, yeah, he was talking about, you know, get rid of the whole grant writing process. Like his whole thing yeah. was like, you know, foundations should just be like, here's a two page, you, you can use it any foundation, any funding source, and that's it. Like, why do we, why do we have to work so hard and go through all these and spend all our time and our capacity by going through these, these jumping around through hula hoops and all the things, right? You know, it's like spinning on our toes and tapping our heads and all of that just to get some money that we might not even be able to spend well, because, you know, it's just, it's the whole process is even just a nightmare. And I, I had to agree with them to be like, even though I, this is my grant writing funding podcast, like we're teaching how to write grants and all that, but it's still like the process itself and the whole system, there's an issue with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really is, I like, I like that unplugging the mind and, and unplugging from that system, you know, uh, one of the things and just kind of circle back to my daughter real quick. Um, one thing I've really been looking at my mom, she's an educator for a long time, um, has been really looking at our schools in Finland and really looking at the whole, you know, different types of education system, because my daughter just did a speech yesterday on why um, they should not have homework and why it's so detrimental to children's health and everything. She's 10. <laughs> she said the whole class was like, yes. And she used Finland as an example. <laughs> and she was saying, you know, compared to only uh, 20 hours of school per week. And we look at ours as like 35 hours of you know, school per week. And we don't have as much playtime, et cetera. So our minds don't really have the opportunity 
to grow in certain ways. And I was like, wow, you know, that's, that's so cool to, to see her even understanding that at such a young age, of course. Right. But even our education system, I think a lot of it comes from there, like how we're raised in the system of standardized test of, oh, I, my worth is in this grade. That's just, you know, on some weird metric anyways. So, yes. So I actually have something about that, that I think your listeners and watchers will find very interesting. Um, there's this thing um, called the different kind of teacher by um, the seven lessons of school. Um, and uh, John Taylor Gatto wrote it. And so the seven lessons of school, he was uh, basically a um, 30 year veteran of New York City public school system. And when he was getting his award for his lifetime achievement, he said, I don't actually teach English. Here's what I did teach though. He said, I teach um, uh, emotional dependency, which is your opinion of yourself doesn't matter. Your parents' opinion doesn't matter. What matters is outside strangers. Their opinion of you is what matters the most. And so your teacher's grade on the test is what matters, right? Yeah. Um, I, I teach confusion. When the lesson of the bells is every time the bell rings, we have to turn to something else, even if we're really interested in what we're doing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so you don't get to choose mm -hmm. what you work on. And that's um, indifference. That mm -hmm. gives you indifference to all of your lessons because you're not allowed to choose like a year-long project. You're not allowed to choose like job shadowing. You're not allowed to choose like community service. You can't choose. You just have to do reading, writing, and arithmetic. And he's like, what we do is a great lie. Mm. Um, he's like, this system was created by people in the 1800s, childless men who wanted to create good industrial workers. And so some more of the seven lessons of school are you know, class position, that doesn't matter. Your permanent record doesn't exist, right? But that's another tool of control. Yeah. And he also puts in, you know, intellectual dependency. You don't have any time outside of homework and school and activities to actually pursue what you're interested in. Same for today's jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And then emotional dependency, like, you know, if you're not doing well in school, you should feel like a bad person. Mm -hmm. It's like, again, that's preparing us for this world of work that we can't separate our selfhood from. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, you know, one can't hide, like, and provisional self-esteem. So can't hide. You have to get a pass to go to the bathroom, right? They pat you down for guns in a lot of schools. Like, it's ridiculous, you know? Like, um, so we can break these patterns, mm -hmm. but first we have to know that we're caught up in them. Right. So if your readers want to learn about the seven lessons of school, there's a website I can add to the show notes as well. So oh, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Cause I really, yeah. you know, as we look at it, there's all different ways of how we're, we've kind of been raised in this culture. And of course, education is one of the, it's a big one. Cause that's, yeah. you know, we're brought up where right? we spend so much time in these schools. Um, and it's just like, what are we really learning? And you know, the more that's what we're learning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just like, wow. So really looking at that and saying, there's gotta be different ways. And then when you look at different countries, like you even said with the work week and everything, there are different examples out there, right. That we can um, model or we can pull from. And it was interesting mm -hmm. because even Finland was saying, well, some of the concepts were actually from America more of that democracy, but it's not actually being used in the United States, you know, even though some of the concepts might have been developed there. So it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, they're like actually really doing it. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, looking at that is just, you know, to be aware that a lot of these outside processes, external things that we've been raised in have developed us then to maybe not ask for that raise, to feel inadequate, to feel like maybe it's not my place or to not like conflict because of that. Or when you're as a freelancer, you think I've got to work harder than everybody else because 
I've got to put food on my table. And that can be a really, really real fear, right? So understanding that as well to say, no, you can redevelop and redesign and not charge so low to try to get jobs. Then you, if you're charging really low, yeah, you're going to take on a lot more clients to pay the bills and you are going to be caught up in this cycle again. So is that kind of, as far as that freelancer, you know, example, is that one thing um, or anything else that you would recommend to freelancers, not just to increase prices, but what are other things they can do so they're not caught up in that? Like I got to work my, my ass off 24 seven cycle. Yeah. Acknowledge first that your mind has been colonized. Acknowledge first that your mind has been constantly swept in the patriarchal soup that we call society. Every time you look at a bus ad, every time that you look at the internet, every time that you look at the TV set, or even popular books and novels or the newspaper um, websites, you're going to be finding a lot of support of that. Mm -hmm. So get in there and clean out what you look at. Yeah. I've made it a point to only read female authors for the last several years. And I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Mm -hmm. um, the protagonists are fantastic. Um, the people, the stories are, fa they're fascinating. And you just sort of unplug your mind from certain aspects bit by bit. Mm -hmm. um, I try to only recommend female um, artists to people or female musicians to people. Um, I try to work with women and support women and uplift other women's voices. And so for the last you know, five years, I've been doing online conferences um, and interviewing people as well um, since 2015 on, um, and just interviewing women and, um, and uplifting women's work and women's voices. Um, because for me, that's important mm -hmm. to live my values that way. And if you are a consultant and you're afraid that you're not going to have enough support as a consultant, I say, give other people what you would like to receive. If you want support, offer support to others. Mm -hmm. um, and you're never going to be alone. And all of these other guys in the old boys club, they didn't make it alone. That individualism is a myth. Yes. It's a myth that we break together right here and right now. And if you want to learn more about how to ask for more in your business and have project rates instead of hourly rates, that's what I help people do. We, we rehearse these conversations until you get your mindset right and you feel confident that you can do it. And mindset is a whole other piece. We could talk for an hour just on mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe for several episodes on mindset. Actually, <laughs> it's an ongoing process. It's about freeing your own mind mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. everything the world is telling you. In, in It's just the enemy is in here as well as out there, you know, so... But the good news is you don't have to be perfect. You just have to take the first step. Yes, I love that. And I thank you so much. So this has been such an awesome podcast. I'm so excited. <laughs> we talked about like big, but then we also got in the nitty gritty on specific examples. So I really appreciate that. And I really want people, if they're interested then, and how do I have that conversation? I want to prep that conversation with Nazarene. Like, how do they get a hold of you? Where do they find you? So go to mazarinetrays.com slash work with me. And we can put that link in the show notes. It's work dash with dash me. We're going to mazarinetrays.com. I'm not going to spell it for you. Hopefully it's right on the show notes, whatever, or the name of the podcast. But um, you can just go right to my work with me page and click the link and you can set up a consult free of charge. And then we can see where we go from there. But um, as I said, I'm looking for five more people in my mastermind. And it can take a whole year before you feel ready to say, yeah, I want to ask for 75,000 a year for a part-time job. And I just help a woman get that like two months ago. So 
that's possible for you as a consultant to have that. And it's all possible. It's just a question of, you know, allowing yourself, feeling it, knowing it, having a community of other women around you to be like, yes, you can do this. Drip feeding yourself those little successes. And that's what we do so that you get out of this mindset of nothing is working to like, oh, it's all working. It's all always working. And I'm quoting here, Julia Wells, who has her own podcast, which we don't have to go to right now. So anyway. <laughs> I love that. So I love that people can find you. They can work with you. They can be in your mastermind. So you have multiple yes. ways of how people can um, be served with you and to kind of further their journey on as far as stepping into their own. And, and I love that because a lot of times it's, um, you know, we look at, especially we see a lot of these products. It's like, do, do this exactly like this cookie cutter template and then X will happen. And it's like, that's, that's really not the case. We're also different. We all have different desires of how we want our lives to be shaped, that what works for you might be a good example and inspiration for me, but I still need to tune in. I still need to figure out what my values are and to move forward and what, how I want to design my life. So I love that you work with people. So, um, you know, intimate, right. In an intimate way where you can get to those, like, let's see how this can work for you. So masterminds, I'm a huge fan. I love that you're doing that. And I love that you have coaching and you have the ability to really work with people and, in, in designing their destinies and really moving forward and, and breaking the spell. So thank you so much, Mazarine, for being on the show today. <laughs> thank you for helping people break the spell, Holly. Thank you for having me. Like it's, we can all be spell breakers. I mean, this is how we're going to survive this time. This is how we're going to thrive is if we all support each other. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on to Get Ready to Funding, a podcast and YouTube channel. So we will definitely have you back on and definitely guys check out the show notes. I have all of the links. You guys are going to want to see everything Mazarine does and be in her world because she's amazing. So thank you again. <laughs> thank you. I so hope you enjoyed this podcast episode today. And as always, if you love this podcast, would you please do me a favor and leave a review on iTunes or your podcast listener. This really does help other people find the podcast and I get to hear back from you. As we are fully self-funded podcast, um, you may notice we have no sponsors except for ourselves because Grant Rating and Funding actually sponsors this podcast. Um, it really does help to get other uh, testimonials as well as just to hear back from folks out there that are listening and how you're liking the podcast. All right, guys, once again, visit grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 201 for all of the links because you know there's so many today. Lots of great information from Mazarine. Totally enjoyed this conversation. I am a super fan of hers. Um, I subscribe to her newsletter. I love everything she's about. And if you do too, please um, join me with her. And please do make sure you sign up for our free day challenge next week. So our five-day free challenge starting January 17th to the 21st. And hey guys, if you're listening to this after the fact and you're like, oh, I wish I could join that challenge, um, go ahead and sign up to our Hub Haven and you will get on our newsletter list. So you will be sure uh, to get notice when the next five-day challenge is available. But that is how to confidently pitch your grant writing services to nonprofit clients. Remember, it comes with a script and it comes with videos and you are going to love it. All right, guys. So once again, grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 201. All right, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.